Welcome to Farming for Health, where Farmer Lee Jones and I talk with leaders in food, farming, and health and wellness to spread knowledge and inspire a plant-forward future, starting now. I'm Dr. Amy Sapola, and today I'm joined by Lauren Lovejoy, a regenerative farmer and so much more. Thank you, Lauren, for being here with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about all things regenerative. Yeah, yeah. So I love everything you're working on, and I'd love for you just to start off by telling our audience about yourself and how you came into regenerative farming. Yeah, do you want the the 10 second version or the 10 minute version? It it was quite a journey. (laughs) Yeah, let's hear the whole journey. Yeah, so um, I was your normal 20 something uh, in college, graduate school and living life to the fullest, having tons of fun. And I got devastatingly ill where I went from doing CrossFit every day, working a nine to five and going to school to I couldn't get up out of bed at all. And that happened all of a sudden. And within two months, I became bed bound to the point that I had to move home and be caretaken, which was kind of a really like crazy experience. And I went through this very long uh, series of seeing doctors. I saw 60 doctors in two years with zero diagnosis, zero understanding of why when I stood up, I was disoriented all the time. The only time I didn't feel disoriented was when I was laying down. So that was pretty miserable. And after a lot of different scenarios, I 100% by accident ended up in a Lyme disease specialist office where he diagnosed me with chronic Lyme disease. And I was like, this is the best day ever. I'm going to get better. I'm just going to take some doxycycline and I'm going to be totally back on my feet. Um, And that was so far from the truth. I had no idea what the disease I had gotten was going to do. And it then took me about another five years to really like I went through antibiotics and all these different things and they didn't work for me and I didn't get better. And I ended up again, a hundred percent by accident in a nutritional herbalist office. And she was the only person that said, I get what's going on with you. And I understand why you don't feel well. And she got me back to feeling well within a week, like not back and fixed, but that I could sit up and not just be devastatingly ill all the time. Um, So this set me down this path of like nutritional healing, right? Like how did all these doctors and all these people miss this for so long? How amazing is it that food and nutrition is the underlying answer to everything that was going wrong? So um, that is kind of the short version of how nutrition and food became the focus. And kind of at this time, as I said, I had gone back to live with my family who lived on land that was rented to a conventional farmer. And I started having this like mixed thing happening of seeing my health deteriorate and watching land deteriorate around outside me that I had grown up on by these cattle farmers that just set their cows out. And at the end of the year, they came and took away what they wanted to harvest. And around that same time, I saw Alan Savory's TED Talk and went, oh my God, I can be fixed. The land can be fixed. Everything could be fixed. And then we start down the hole of regenerating the land and nutritional content of the food anyway. So if we can grow a stock of broccoli that makes me feel better, how amazing would it be to grow broccoli that is even more nutritionally dense that can heal me more? And so that's kind of the very short version of how just this crazy health journey and happening to end up back under my family's care and watching land that I had no interest in all change how I felt about the entire world. And it's just made me so passionate about everything in that space. (laughs) Oh my gosh, what an incredible journey. I'd love to hear like, what were your first steps when you started after you saw the TED talk and what, how did you talk with your family? How did you get going with regenerative agriculture? 
Well, so, um, so my family had this conventional farm. It was about 60 acres of land that they rented to the cattle farmer. And um, by that time, I had met my spouse online, who is my best friend, love of my life. And we had a couple chickens and a couple goats. And we just kind of like enjoyed having animals. And I saw the TED Talk and I went, we're doing it all wrong. Like, I don't care if it's only five chickens and three goats, we should do this totally differently. And so I went to my parents and I said, um, you know, would you open up a couple acres to me? Would you give me more space to do this? And my parents said, okay, like a couple acres is fine. Just, you know, farming's not really our thing. Like none of us do it. Let's, you know, calm down. Um, <laughs> and so I, I absolutely didn't, I did the opposite of that. And I calmed up, you know, and I started doing all these things and rotational grazing and I got really involved in it. And I started realizing, of course, how hard it was. No one tells you that, you know, yes, goats are hard to keep in, but oh my gosh, like then you start moving them around in different scenarios. We live in mountains. It's twice as hard. Like, so then all these questions came up of like, how do I do this and how do I execute it? And that's kind of where regenerative farmers came to light that I wanted to, where are these other people that are doing it? Um, how do we do this? And it started me searching for answers that weren't necessarily readily available. So I was able to connect with all these other farmers and I wanna elevate all these other people doing it. So as I am making mistakes on my farm, as I am losing my mind, chasing my goats out across the farm because they're out for the 50th time, like, you know, <laughs> um, so that was kind of the baby steps. And then basically we hit a, a drought year about two years ago, where it was a very, very dry summer. We're still in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We can't complain. It's not Texas. It's not the Midwest or anything, but it was very dry. And my parents looked out and my acreage had grass and there was things to graze and the conventional farmer, the, it looked terrible bare earth everywhere. The cows looked miserable, like everything was not going well. And in just one year, they said, okay, I see it. I get it. You know, and then yeah. we were able to say, okay, let's do this to the whole farm. And we're in the chaos of what micro farming to a bigger scale is. But you know, even just people say it takes time to see regeneration, but that's just not been my experience. I see it happens so fast. <laughs> well, that's incredible, because I think you know, one of the things I've come to realize, even just working here at the Chef's Garden, is regeneration of the land and your health, like you talked about. And it sounds like both came along relatively quickly. A message from our sponsor. The Chef's Garden is a family-owned regenerative farm that grows the most flavorful and nutritious vegetables, herbs, and microgreens for culinary professionals and home cooks. For over 30 years, the Chef's Garden has supplied some of the world's finest chefs and restaurants. Now, through Farmer Jones Farm, the same delicious ingredients are available to home cooks in the United States to use and enjoy, delivered directly to their homes. The Chef's Garden mission is to grow exceptional vegetables, care for each other in the land, and to inspire a vegetable-forward future. For more information, visit chefs-garden.com. Um, when it comes to regeneration, for people who are maybe newer to the concept of regenerative agriculture or even just regenerating your own health, can you kind of speak to like, what are some of the practices you're doing that you see the most benefit from in both cases? Oh, well, that, that's so many, right? Let's go high level. Uh, so rotational grazing is probably just, I think the biggest thing is that um, nature and life lives in motion. So if you leave animals in one plot, it's going to be too much for something. Or if you never graze something, it's not going to get the stimulation it needs. So I think rotational grazing is just moving animals from plot to plot. The simple thing of letting them come eat a plant 
and tell that plant that the roots need to be deepened, all that nutrition goes in and it strengthens the plant and then the animals move so that plant is able to grow back and come back stronger. And that just simple concept just means so much to me that animal impact is in a perfect state. It is not an exact measurement, but you know, it's all that different thing. So rotational grazing would definitely be number one. Number two is the permaculture mindset, looking at what everything's purpose is. Um, and this kind of goes in my health because there, there's all these incidents where you do things for your health and it causes this cascade, right? Like, so I'm detoxifying my liver and then all of a sudden my stomach is upset all the time because all this stuff has moved. And it's this, you would instantly go, oh, this is bad. My stomach hurts. Well, no, this is a process of the body removing and detoxifying. And I like to look at that in the context that it's going. So we had a lot of weeds come up. Well, why did those weeds come up? What did I do that changed that scenario? And it was saying that the land was so degraded that the weeds were trying to pull that nutrition back out. And the weeds were telling me that the land was suffering. They just hadn't been able to express themselves because they'd been stomped by cattle for two decades. Um, <laughs> so yeah. the weeds and everything, they all serve their purpose. So it's just this interesting system of letting nature move and then trying to listen and say, what is happening as the result? Not say oh, this is bad. Weeds are bad. My stomach hurting is bad. Like, what does this mean? What is this telling me? And how can I go from here? And it's been a frustrating learning experience because nobody wants the bad that's in between. But I think it's kind of the important stuff that shows the weak spots and the things that have to arise for change to happen. Oh, that's such a good point. And I think when you talk about just the diversity of even more different weeds or plants coming up, that probably gives the animals a more diverse diet as well as different plants begin to grow. How does the um, diversity of what the animals are eating, how is that impacting like the nutritional value of the meat as well? Right. Well, so if you have a cow and the cow eats grass every single day, like cows need protein and grass is not notoriously high protein. If we have legumes and all these other protein rich things like even in if you're really interested in like butchery and marbling and all that stuff a cow raised on a full corn diet versus a cow raised on a diverse grass diet is going to be an entirely different meat profile um and i think like the bionutrient association is coming up with even vegetables broccoli grown in certain contracts versus broccoli grown otherwise has completely different nutrient panels uh, milk from a cow that is milked in the morning versus at night. It has different hormone levels in it. Like it, it's amazing how diverse something is. And it just becomes again, a little bit overwhelming based on like exactly what those forages were. What were the inputs that were introduced? Like, is there medicine that's involved? Like, cause of vaccinations and antibiotics, like every single thing changes the context. And that's exactly the same for grasses and all the forages and and let's add in trees on top of it. And we're just going in three-dimensional. Like yeah. It's real crazy, real fast. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I know you're interested in on your farm is rare breed animals. And I'd love to talk more about how you became interested and kind of what are some of the benefits to keeping rare, rare breed animals? Yeah. Well, I, I'll say I, I came in the road because they were so cute. So that was the first <laughs> problem, right? Oh, cute animals on the internet. I must have them. And that craziness has... Uh, led me down a tough road because we really debated like, should we go animal sanctuary at first? And um, I just kind of firmly believe in nature that sanctuaries aren't necessarily natural. And that's, I, I could go on a whole tangent about that, about being disabled and fittest and all that good stuff, but I won't go down that road. Basically, we were really drawn to these specific types of animals. So it took me down this road of saying, why is this animal unique? Why is this animal no longer 
something people usually utilize. And it almost came back to that industrial agriculture conversation again. The Holsteins and stuff were predispositioned to fatten on corn better than these other breeds that took much longer, but fattened on grass. So when we were making these choices, my context was not to fatten on corn or do anything that my context was to fatten and thrive in nature. So I chose animals that just happened to be back to their roots, back to the original heritage animals that really survived in nature in good context. So that's kind of how we started our search. And we just happened to really like the unique ones, of course. So we have some Poitou donkeys, which are basically like giant teddy bears. It's a combo of a dog and a horse mixed together that we love. <laughs> um, but our pigs, we chose ones that weren't deep rooters and things that didn't disrupt the soil. They did some, but we have to do it in limited context because no till we can argue that some till is good. And we felt natural pig till is good, but we didn't want like digging up to the underlayer, turning everything again. Those are right. like industrial system hogs that just didn't make sense for our context. So kind of heritage breeds possess this very unique quality that fits in nature better to us is how we got down that road. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. And it's interesting you were even able to select to the level of like um, digging that the pigs do. I mean, it sounds like the perfect way to fit your system um, and to get the benefit, like the most benefit out of the animals you keep. Well, people will also say we, we did some trial and error, of course. Yeah. We thought maybe we'll try a couple that are mid-level and within one season we went the impact is too much for our context. It, it, we, if we hit a dry season again, we are in so much trouble. And it's, you know, you have to do trial and error to understand because in somewhere that has higher rainfall, they probably would have been so much better. But for us, just based on, and again, how much time can the farmer put in? Maybe if we had moved them faster, they might be a better fit. But again, it's based on your exact situation, what animal kind of holistically fits in with your system. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so when it comes to like raising the animals, I, I know there's a lot of, um, kind of literature out there in the scientific research. Often it's just referred to as like beef or just like eggs, you know, right. when they talk about nutritional research, but I think there's so much variation in how an animal is raised, the nutrition, um, that can come from the animal as we've already discussed, but for people who aren't maybe as familiar with it, how your animals are raised versus conventional agriculture. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, and I, I wish I knew more about it myself. Like this is probably not my area of expertise, but just kind of the same thing we were talking about. If an animal is fed corn every day, if mm -hmm. you are fed ramen noodles every single day, you're going to feel a certain type of way. Your nutritional deficiencies are going to kick in. So if an animal like a cow is meant to eat multiple different forages and that's what their gut digests, we already know that corn is not as easily digestible as other foods. So why is that 100% of their diet? let's step back and say they mix it with other things and then they're sometimes grass fed. This is still like a heavy ramen diet is not making anybody <laughs> happy at the end of the day. So just again, thinking back to like, what were the early systems? What were things that animals naturally thrived on and back to the health thing? Like, what did I thrive in? And I think that's why there's so many diets now. The diet that I survive well on is totally different from my spouses and other people. People are predispositioned to eat different things based on where our ancestors came from and all these different things about uh, and health conditions and whatever has complicated along the way. But if we don't eat foods that our body needs to heal and be nutritionally viable, kind of same thing for everything. We just, mm -hmm. we have to be put in the right place. And I think it can be expressed, of course, in like meat quality and those nutritional panels. But 
there was this beautiful example done about the color of milk that came from a cow over six months of the year, depending on the grasses that they ate on the same farm. And the color changed every single month because of what was available in the grass diet. And if we can just see that in color, like just that simple layer, what can we see if we really start understanding nutrient panels and different things like that? Yeah. And I know um, you said you shared with me prior that broccoli has been really important in your healing journey. And can you speak to that as well? Yeah. Um, so like almost every single woman in America, I have high estrogen that is built in from, uh, you know, birth control use uh, diets that are heavy in soy and corn and all these things make high estrogen in women. And we start having all these hormonal flares and they're like, oh, just go on birth control and they'll be better. And that was not the answer for me. It might be for other people, but it definitely wasn't. So I have spent like three years trying to detox huge amounts of estrogen out of my body. And there are lines and lines and lines of supplements that they say they'll do this. And I have been taking them and taking them and taking them. But when I have this huge flare, I can feel it. Like my face gets flushed, my body starts getting sluggish and it comes on. And instead of going to these supplements, which are highly, highly concentrated, what works better for me is going and eating a raw stock of broccoli and putting it in my mouth and I feel instant relief from it. And I think that's just attesting to that if we understand food and we know what our body is needing at the exact moment, we can do that. And that's just one food and one example. Like if we were smart enough to know more different things all the time, I feel like it would really accelerate us. So I, I will be a huge proponent of supplements forever. I think they're amazing. I think they allow us to get high levels of nutrition in in concentrated forms, but the body does not digest supplements the way the body digests food. So again, are we absorbing the nutrients that we're putting in our body? Do we need foods to go in with it? Because we know calcium is better absorbed in the presence of other nutrition. Like, so it just, mm -hmm. it's and this beautiful, complicated area that it, it just, goes wild. Yes. Oh my gosh. I get so excited talking about that because I think there's so much innate wisdom in food and we tend to single out like the one, the one right. nutrient, right? Like sulfurophane for the example of broccoli and like hormone detox, but there is likely so much more going on. And we know there's thousands of phytochemicals in each vegetable. And so to say that that one is the only thing that's having an impact is a I think massive oversimplification. So I I love hearing the use of food like in its whole form and finding benefit from that even over supplements. And I think, you know, that's such an important point because supplements can really add up as well as far as cost goes and even just having to take them every day where food is something we we do every day. And so you have the opportunity to impact your health literally with every meal and every bite you take. Yeah, I I think supplements are so good if you are like in a nutritional hole, right? Like mm -hmm. something has been chronically off for a while and you just need to get back up there. That's the point. But your body just still, again, doesn't know what to do with those high levels. So let's say we're going to the grocery store and we're taking a Centrum and we're seeing that it's passing through us and we're not absorbing it. And we're saying, why are we buying supplements if we're just letting it pass through us? But as opposed to like when we eat real foods. The body knows what to do with it and the body knows and I, we could go into like the demonization of fats fats mm -hmm. are not bad it depends on the context of the fats and where they come from and like all these good things and i just think if you're going to hand your body different options to hand them natural foods gives them so much better a fighting chance to put them in the right place rather than to put them in this like confusing like 
well, this pill's over here and this pill's over here. Do they go together? Do they go separate? Do they need two hours spaced out? Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Wild. So your journey with Lyme disease um, led you to form Lyme Warrior, an organization to help support other people with Lyme disease. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So when I was very, very sick and I couldn't sit up or do anything, I just, I, I was so mad that it had taken me so long to get a diagnosis. I mean, like, these were not the golden days of an agreeable personality. Like I just was so mad how I was treated by the medical system, by friends and family who didn't get it like top to bottom. It, it's a very, very isolating disease that even once you get a diagnosis, it's so hard to explain what's going on. So my thing was, I, there, I know there's people out there like me. I know there are millions of people fighting this disease all the time. And why is it this needle in the haystack, this like disease that no one acknowledges, the CDC doesn't acknowledge, like, why is this disease like not acceptable if so many people have it? So I wanted to create a resource that people could say, this is where you come to get information about this thing that everybody tells you isn't real and it doesn't exist and your doctor tells you isn't real and it doesn't exist. So it was so important to me to have educational resources and somewhere to go that if I'm saying I'm having this crazy neurological thing happening and everybody is telling me, oh, you're anxious or you're just depressed. And I'm like, I am really not. There is something very chemically wrong going on inside me. It was a place that you could reach out to other people and that they're going to tell you you're not crazy because that in itself will make you feel better than a lot of different medicines or anything else is gonna do. So I just, I wanted there to be a place for it. And our focus was originally on research. Lyme disease has finally become popular enough that now all the universities are studying it. So now our big focus is if you get Lyme, what can I do to shorten your journey? Like, what can I tell you are the different things that they didn't tell me? Um, and one of the biggest things was that antibiotics is not a silver bullet it's a great solution for a lot of people, but it, it, again, there's thousands and thousands of people who are still done the antibiotic route and still are suffering. So what about them? They matter too. And that's kind of my near and dear to my heart part of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's incredible. And I do think there's so much to be said for community and feeling heard yeah. and feeling supported um, along your journey. So um, the other thing I love is you've written children's books about regenerative agriculture and can you tell me about the journey and like how you decided to write children's books um, and kind of tell me a little bit more about that? Yep. So um, when we started regeneratively farming, I just I was like, everybody has to know about this, right? Like regenerative ag is the coolest new thing that's ever emerged. So one of the big things is we had a um, the, the house I inherited from my parents was a very large house. So we started doing Airbnb and I was like, everybody come. I want to show you what I'm doing. <laughs> And so I would be out there just like rambling on to people about all my excitement and all the things that were going on. And the parents who brought kids would do this really weird thing. They would then take the kid over, the kid's so excited, super into the animals, and they would bring the kid over and they would be like, well, farming is really, really hard. And you have to do this every day and that's tough. And like, I'm not sure you wanna do this, like step back. And I went, oh my God, why is everybody so negative about farming? This is the future. This is how we provide food. This is how we fix the world. Like, why are you being such a Debbie Downer? And I realized it bothered me so much because my parents told me the same thing, that I grew up on a farm and they said, do whatever you wanna do, but don't farm. And that memory had been like buried in the back of my head. And it just kind of came up on one of these days that I was showing this to children and I went, how are we supposed to grow as a culture if we're demonizing farming to our children right. from five years old and up? So 
to me, writing this kid's book, I wanted to kind of show kids like you can do this in a context that other people are going to say no to you, but it's okay. It's okay to love this. And it's okay to want to be part of this. And I found that a children's book was kind of the only way I was going to send this disarming message that didn't have so many ways to be negative. If I had written an adult book, everybody is going to tear it apart and find things. And I just kind of wanted this pure message that it's okay to be happy and excited about things. And you're going to hear negativity. There's going to be storms that wipe out crops. Farming is not easy, but it is overcomable and it's important. And so that kind of was like, there needs to be a book that tells the story. And I was super, you know, I, I definitely went and looked for one first and there wasn't one there. I would not say I am like a writer or like that's born into me, but I just felt that this story kind of had to be out there in the world. <laughs> oh yeah. I love it. That's when I started here at the chef's garden, our CEO actually gifted it to my children. Um, and it was such a sweet and thoughtful gift and the kids love reading it. So, and it's Aww, called the it. literal regenerative farmer. So yes. such a great book. And I really think, you know, that is so important because future generations really need to know where your food's coming from to have like to have that as a possible career choice like yeah. I know it's getting hard and I mean maybe you can speak to this too it's getting um farming is often in bigger chunks of land right and so small farms are less and less common a note from our sponsor Farming for Health is brought to you by Farmer Jones Farm at the Chef's Garden. Farmer Jones Farm provides nutritious, regeneratively grown vegetables to home cooks nationwide. If you are searching for vegetables grown in a way that's healthy for you and good for the planet, try a curated box from Farmer Jones Farm. Get 15% off your order with the code FARMINGFORHEALTH15. Um, what's been your experience being a small farmer so far, like in this world of big egg? Yep. Yeah. Every small, small farmer will tell you it's tough, right? Like, yeah. because you can't get margins to have buy-ins and you can't, it, it's so hard to be part of the conversation. And one of the things that I will always come back to is I believe this is one of the most unfair professions that we have to create this product out of nothing built on land, that land prices are so high and you go through this is one of the industries with the notoriously smallest margins. So there's so little profitability. And then you either have to sell it at a commodity level that is even more undervalued, or you have to go market your entire farm to sell direct to consumer. So then you have to be the person standing at the farmer's booth. You have to be the person doing the marketing and you have to be on every single moment after you went and worked a full day of farming. And I'm just like, when did anybody decide that that was okay? A normal business has a marketing department. It has the promotions department. It has all these other things because it accepts that that is too much for one person. Why is farming still built into this context of that? So I think small farmers are kind of set up to fail, which is really, again, like upsetting about a cultural thing. If food and healing is so important and we don't want things in the hands of big ag and monopolies, like who are making choices based on profitability, not context, how do we support small farmers? Um, that led to me creating the map of regenerative farmers across the entire world. I wanted to increase transparency. If you wanna buy from a regenerative farmer, here are all the ones I know, and I'm going to keep looking for more every single day because I want the small farmers to be really elevated because I just, I think the burden we put on them is not fair. Um, and I, I am so excited about the rise of regenerative farming because I think we are starting to acknowledge and accept like this is the most important thing. Supporting your farmer is what leverages the biggest amount of change, even though it feels so small. So that's kind of a constant discussion we're having. Um, 
because we can find market gardens that are on a half an acre that feed entire communities for months and months and months, like almost through the entire year, depending on where you live. Why isn't that amazing and celebrated? Mm -hmm. Instead, we say, well, your broccoli is a little more expensive to maybe a lot more expensive. Is that really worth my time? Because the grocery store also has everything else. And it's just, it's this cultural mind shift of going to the grocery store to buy everything as opposed to having to be inconvenienced to go find a way to support your local farmer. And, you know, we, we put the burden on farmers. We'll just go do it online and start doing drop boxes and drop it off at people's stores. Okay, now I'm the delivery person as well, <laughs> you know, right. so- I just really encourage people to think when you buy literally a head of broccoli, a slice of beef, whatever you want to buy, what process led that, led you to that purchase? And is that a system you like supporting? And yeah. that's tough. <laughs> right. I think it does take so much thought and consideration and like, how are your dollars like going beyond just the thing you're taking home, but like, how is it supporting the bigger picture? And I do think there's so much to be said for the process of growing vegetables and the nutrient density that isn't necessarily um, appreciated. Often farmer Lee Jones will say like a carrot is not a carrot is not a carrot, right? Like right. <laughs> it totally depends on the soil it's grown in and you know, how it's transported, when it's picked, all the things, yeah. what type of seed variety. Um, so I think it is, you know, um, there's so much benefit to be had nutritionally from buying, like buying based on quality and flavor and color and all of the things versus simply, um, you know, least, least expensive when that's possible. Because yeah. I also fully acknowledge that that's not always, you know, within someone's budget. And I like to challenge that in a way that we, somebody did a study and they said an apple grown in the seventies versus an apple. Now you would have to eat eight of them to achieve the mm -hmm. same nutritional quality. So just because you can't see it, you know, yes, these things are expensive, but what is the nutritional quality? Do you have right. to buy eight conventional apples to offset the single one? And I think we're about to have the technology to really like prove that a little bit more, but right now it's, it's a little bit of a leap of faith in that. But there's a lot of people who talk about, we have a, uh, a nation full of food, but not a nation full of nutrients. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, again, even if you're coming down to, well, not everybody can afford to live this way. Well, how much do you have to multiply as your perception or would doing less equal more, which is a tough conversation for everybody, but. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the same conversation we're having here too, is, you know, it, the nutrient density and how many people are walking around with nutrient deficiencies that they don't even realize. And so, um, you know, I think there's so much value to nutrient density that hasn't fully been appreciated and we're hoping to do some work on and uncover a little bit more about. So um, yes. I know that, you know, you are a passionate regenerative farmer. Our podcast is called Farming for Health. When you hear that, what does that um, make you think of or what comes to you when you think of Farming for Health? Yeah, I, I always think back to the nutritional healing that got my life back on track. Um, just for example, there was a specific supplement. It's a hypothalamus, which is part of one of the lobes of your brain. And basically I was deficient in that. And when I supplemented my body nutritionally with this glandular that was already part of my body, my gland in my brain was able to function better and my entire body changed. So that like food is health. We can use food to heal all these different diseases and conditions. It's it's not the bullet that pharmaceuticals are, it's not all those different things, but 
wow, isn't that amazing that something I have access to all the time or, you know, can find a way to be accessible to is a solution for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I know people are going to want to connect with you that are watching or listening to our podcast. Where do they find you online? Yeah. Uh, so Regenerative Farmers of America, definitely on Instagram. I'm going to say that there first because there are all the amazing regenerative farmers. Like, you know, my farm is still kind of stumbling through and learning as we go, but I definitely suggest there. You can reach me through the website um, and all kinds of different places. Um, and the kids book is also there. If people want to reach out to me through the website, I am always happy to answer questions. And I also love it when people come to me, like I've been thinking about doing this, do you know resources? I love connecting people. So if anybody ever has questions, just I'm always free to talk about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me and all you guys do. Thank you for listening to Farming for Health. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Connect with Farmer Lee Jones and I on Instagram and Facebook.